This is The Memo by Howard Marks. Today, we're featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origins, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. In this episode, Howard reflects on Lines in the Sand, which was originally published on April 18th, 2017. Here's Howard. Lines in the Sand is really an extension of a memoir I wrote back in 2006 called You Can't Eat IRR. And basically what I was doing there is drawing the distinction between dollar returns and percentage returns. You can't eat IRR. You can't spend IRR. A fund that has a higher IRR doesn't necessarily make you richer than a fund with a lower IRR. Now that sounds counterintuitive, but remember that what matters on an investment is the dollar profit. Now, if you can have a higher IRR with a lot of money invested, that's a good thing. But if you have a high IRR with very little money invested, you can publish a high IRR, but it doesn't give you much in the way of dollar profits. It doesn't give you much spending power. And I think that's an extremely important distinction to make. I try to write memos when things become topical. One form of development is the creation of new concepts in the investment business. New techniques are used, new types of funds are developed, new innovations come into use. Many times, I'm skeptical of these things. Financial innovation is usually driven by someone's desire to make money, if not investors, then perhaps Wall Street. And by definition, innovation is only possible in positive times. In negative times, innovation looks scary. Risk-bearing is off-putting. People think of risk-bearing as, well, just another way to lose money. But in the good times, people say, ah, risk-bearing is a good thing. The more risk I take, the more money I make. So innovations, by definition, are taken up in good times. And since they're not tested in good times, we don't get a chance to find out firsthand what the downside potential is. But that's why I tend to write about innovations. I wrote a memo entitled Lines in the Sand on the subject of subscription lines because they were becoming popular at the time I wrote it, which was April of 2017. A subscription line, it's a bank loan that allows the general partner, the organizer of a fund, to call money from the bank on the loan rather than money from the investors in the partnership in terms of their equity capital. As usual, more aggressive investors started using them more and earlier than we did. Subscription lines are not leverage, as I define it. Leverage means that you, as the general partner, organize a fund with 100 million of capital commitments. You invest the 100, but you also borrow 50 from a bank and invest that. So now you have capital commitments of 100, but you've made investments of 150. That's leverage making investments that exceed your capital, that's leverage. Subscription lines are not a form of leverage. What subscription lines mean are that you form a fund with committed capital of 100, but in the early days, rather than call that capital, you draw money on your subscription line from the bank, 
that suppresses the amount of equity capital you have called, which by definition, all things equal, increases the IRR on successful investments. Everybody wants high IRRs. An IRR is the dollar-weighted return that a fund has produced. So in other words, if you organize a $100 million fund and you call all the money and it doubles, then you've made $100 million. But if you call 10 million of the 100 and it doubles, you've only made $10 million. Later on, if you call the other $90 million and you put it up 10%, you make $9 million. And the IRR is not so high since the 90 was invested at 10%, but the $10 million that you invested in doubled. Well, it still factors in, but it has less weight in the calculation. The return was accomplished on a smaller capital base. A certain rate of return, if accomplished with a lot of money invested, should count more than a certain return with a little money invested. The former has more impact on the fund's actual result. What matters to investors, or what should matter, is the dollar return. You put up, you commit $100 million to a fund. What should matter is how much you get back. And clearly, if you commit $100 and they take $100 and they double it, you make $100, that's great. If you commit $100 and they take $10 million and they double it, you get the same IRR, but not so great because you only made $10 million. So you have to think about how much money did I commit How much did they take from me? How long did they keep it? And what was the rate of return on the money, on the investments that were made with that money? These are all the important questions when figuring out the rate of return. The IRR is the rate of return on the equity capital. And here's a shocker for you. If you make a bunch of money without calling any equity capital, the IRR is infinite, even if you make a very small rate of return since you made it without any equity capital called. And what this shows is that you can have a very high IRR, but not much of a dollar return. The dollar returns on funds we call MOCC or MOIC, multiple of committed capital, the amount of money you committed to the fund, or multiple of invested capital, the amount of money that the organizer of the fund drew from you to invest. In the memo I called the latter MOC, the current verbiage, MOIC, had really not been put into common use by that time. The subscription line permits an increase in the IRR, presumably without an increase in the multiple of capital. It's cosmetic. What matters, again, is the amount of money you put in and the amount of money you get back or the dollar profits. The really important substance of you can't eat IRR was where I show that not only is IRR an imperfect measure of how well your investment did, how well the fund did. But there is no single metric which is perfect in showing how the fund did. Now, every metric requires simplifying assumptions since all the performance developments are multivariate. And what I mean there is that, for example, we have to make some assumption about what happens to the capital of a fund that isn't called. The IRR tells us what was done with the capital that was called. What about the capital that wasn't called? As I mentioned before, the things that matter are how much did you commit? How much was called? What rate was it put to work at? How much did you get back? And no one metric captures all of that. 
how much got called. IRR doesn't really go to that. If you commit 100 to a fund and you only get called for 10, IRR doesn't take cognizance of the fact that 90% of your capital sat idle. Maybe you put up 100, maybe you committed 100, it was called, it was invested in low return investments, but the general partner held on to it for a long time. In that way, you may get a high multiple of capital, but a low IRR. So sometimes you get a high IRR and a low MOIC. Sometimes you get a high MOIC and a low IRR, which is better. Guess what? Can't say. Impossible to say. So no one metric tells the whole story. So the negative of subscription lines mainly has to do with the calling of capital. We'll assume that we're talking here about successful investments. But if rather than call the 100 and invest it in A, B, and C, you call 50 and draw 50 from the bank and invest that 100 in A, B, and C, clearly the profitability of A, B, and C is the same under both circumstances. In the first case, the LP capital case, the no subscription line case, you only invest LP capital, you make 100. Since you use so much LP capital, you, by definition, report a lower IRR on LP capital. But guess what? You don't pay any interest. So in the subscription line case, you make 100 on A, B, and C, but you pay five in interest. You end up with profits of 95. In the no subscription line case, you make 100 on A, B, and C. You don't pay any interest. You end up with 100 of return. So dollar profits are what matter. If you're a client of mine and I say, would you rather have 100 of profit or 95? Almost everyone in the world can answer that question correctly. It's generally better to have 100 than 95. However, the fund with 95 of dollar profit will report a higher IRR because of its lower use of equity capital. It looks better. It's illusory. Now, which do people want? That's the key question. So which one does the general partner, the organizer of the fund want? And the answer in general is that the GP wants high IRRs because it's more attractive performance. It helps the GP compete against her peers and attract money. And of course, the attracting capital is the lifeblood of our industry. Anything that helps you do that might be considered desirable. Certainly, a higher IRR is better in that sense than a lower IRR, especially given that most people look first at IRR, care more about IRR. So the GP wants the high IRR to be competitive and win the race for capital. But the LP might also want it. Why? Well, that's especially true if the LPs are agents. Agents are people who invest money for others, not their own money. And the people they invest for, be it clients or bosses, might have charged them and said, I'm going to evaluate you based on IRR. And in that case, the agents want to produce IRR. This is especially true if the agent's compensation is based on IRR. I'm sure there are people out there who get bonuses, let's say portfolio managers of institutional funds, they're evaluated and compensated on the basis of IRR. So guess what? They want higher IRRs, even though the IRRs aren't necessarily beneficial to the people whose money they're investing. 
if you give people the wrong incentive, you'll get the wrong behavior. And if you pay people based on IRR, that will favor funds that employ subscription lines, everything else being equal, despite the fact that funds that pay subscription lines have interest bills that funds that don't use subscription lines don't get. So the banks want to see widespread use of subscription lines because subscription line loans are generally safe for the banks to make, but it's another form of doing more business. So the point is, ironically, everybody wants high IRRs, even though the subscription lines employed to produce them may be A, not beneficial, but B, actually harmful in that they require the payment of interest, which is unnecessary, really. The reason that I wanted to discuss subscription lines in such depth is that it's important that people understand the pros and the cons. And the first level thinker, I would say, says, I want to have a superior IRR. The second level thinker says, well, what could be the catch? When I see innovation or uniform consensus thinking, my frequent response is to say, what's the catch? And there are catches with subscription lines. For example, the subscription line is secured by the capital commitments of all the LPs. And the bank figures out what percentage of the commitment it can lend a given fund in a subscription line based on the creditworthiness of the LPs. So it's all based on the assumption that the LPs will repay the subscription lines when their capital is called. But what if we get it to tough times? And what if when the calls go out, one of the LPs can't repay the line? Then the others are responsible for more. If many of the LPs in a fund fail to honor their calls, then you may be affected by that. And the subscription line could go into default, which could cause you a problem, even though you met your capital calls. So there are downsides. At this point, I would say they're largely theoretical. The reason for that is that subscription lines have really never been tested. Buffett said cleverly at the beginning of 2009 in the grip of the global financial crisis that it's only when the tide goes out that we find out who was swimming naked. I spoke at the beginning about financial innovations. Financial innovations always sound good on paper. They always sound good based on what the innovator says should happen. The problem is that what should happen is not always what does happen. So innovations are really only tested in tough times when the tide goes out. The assumption that this or that mechanism will work in a protective way for the people who are involved is only tested in tough times. There hasn't really been a tough time for closed-end funds using subscription lines. They were an innovation that took place, oh, I would say mostly around 2011, 12, 13. Obviously, they became more popular, and I wrote the memo in 2017. I would say that they've never really been tested because the vast majority of the last eight, nine, 10 years has been very benign. And the tough time in 2020 with the pandemic was extremely brief. The market started to go into free fall sometime around February 19th of 2020. That's when the S&P hit its then all-time high of 3,300. And the markets declined in, in something approaching free fall for the next five weeks. On March 23rd, the S&P hit 2,200. So it was down exactly a third in five weeks. That's a big decline and very fast. But the market came right back. And so 
as I say, funds with subscription lines were never tested in significant tough times. That doesn't mean that they never will be. And that doesn't mean that people don't have to think about the possible consequences in bad times. I think doing that is an example of second level thinking and essential. I'm going to read two paragraphs from the memo that are my favorites. So on page five, I say the answer is simple. In order to be able to assess fund performance, we have to know how much capital was committed, how much capital was invested, how long was it kept invested, and how much was returned to the LPs. Those four things in total will tell you how you did. But IRR and multiple of committed capital and multiple of invested capital are all significant indicators. Yes, none of them takes all four of these factors into consideration. There is no single metric that is sufficient to tell us how good a job a GP did. We have to consider multiple metrics, and sometimes they give conflicting answers. As I said before, fund A may look better on one of them and fund B on another. So this is really just one way in which investing isn't subject to easy answers. It never is. One fund with a higher IRR didn't necessarily outperform another. Provocatively, a fund that used a subscription line and came with a higher IRR may not have done as good a job or made its LPs as much money, that is what I call dollar profits, as one that didn't use a line or used a line more sparingly and reported a lower IRR. I.e., you can't eat IRR. And now, here's Lines in the Sand by Howard Marks. In my 2016 year-end review, which went only to clients, I included a discussion of the use of subscription lines by closed-end funds in areas such as private equity, real estate, distressed debt, and private credit. It's my impression that their use has become fairly pervasive in recent years, and in response to clients' requests and market trends, Oaktree has utilized subscription lines in some of its newer funds. That year-end note prompted some interesting and spirited discussion of lines and their merit and effect. Thus, I decided to write this memo on the topic for general circulation. How do subscription lines work? As I wrote in the year-end review, subscription lines are bank loans extended to funds that enable them to use borrowed money rather than LP capital to make early investments or pay fees and expenses. While there is no universal description, I believe it's safe to say in general that subscription lines are limited as a percentage of the LP's capital commitments. Commitments from the most creditworthy LPs earn a 90% advance rate, and commitments from lesser credits earn lower advance rates, or in some cases, zero. Are secured by the LP's capital commitments and generally must be repaid in the early or middle part of the fund's life unless extended, although terms are beginning to lengthen. The key element is that a subscription line can substitute for LP capital, but it can't be used to allow the fund to invest more than its committed capital. That is, a $100 million fund with a subscription line might be able to buy $50 million of assets without calling LP capital, but it still can't invest more than $100 million in total, other than by recycling proceeds from liquidated investments. The bottom line is that essentially all subscription line financing does is defer the calling of LP capital. So, the starting point for this discussion is the fact that these lines lever LP capital, but do not lever funds in the sense of allowing funds 
to invest more than their committed capital. Fund-level debt that allows funds to invest more than their committed capital is different from subscription lines and not my subject here. What are the effects? Since a subscription line doesn't lever a fund, its use doesn't increase the total dollar profits that the fund will earn from investments over its lifetime, assuming the GP makes the same investments that it would have made if the fund didn't have a line. Also, the use of a subscription line, obviously, doesn't alter the fund's committed or invested capital. Thus, assuming all LP capital eventually is drawn, the fund's ratio of distributions to LP capital, either the multiple of committed capital, MOCC, or the multiple of invested capital, MOC, isn't improved by the use of a line. So much for what isn't changed. The question then is, what is? First, the positives. The original purpose of subscription lines was A, to enable GPs to make investments and pay fund fees and expenses without frequent capital calls, and B, to prevent opportunistic funds that don't sit on large amounts of cash from missing out on attractive investments requiring quick funding. More recently, however, their use has grown for the additional reasons I'll discuss now. With calls for LP capital postponed, the reported internal rate of return, or IRR, in the early years, the dollar-weighted return on LP capital will increase substantially, assuming the early profits exceed the interest and expenses on the line. The use of borrowed money can reduce or even eliminate the deleterious impact on early returns of the so-called J-curve. The J-curve results from A, the fact that in a fund's early years, management fees are usually charged on total committed capital, while a relatively small percentage of the capital has been put to work, and B, the tendency of private investments to take a while to show results. Over the course of a fund's life, LP capital will typically be called for investments or to repay the borrowings under the subscription line. This will cause the ratio of subscription line capital employed to LP capital to decline. As a result, the fund's IRR will retreat from its elevated early level and move down toward what it would have been if the fund hadn't employed a subscription line. However, all other things being equal, the fund's lifetime IRR will remain higher than it otherwise would have been, since the impact of using the line will taper off, but not reverse. Finally, any committed capital that hasn't been called because of borrowing under the line will remain in the hands of the LPs. Thus, any return the LPs earn on the uncalled capital in excess of their share of the fund subscription line costs will be additive to their results. What about the negatives? If a fund finances investments by borrowing under a subscription line, Interest and expenses will be paid that wouldn't have been paid if LP capital had been called instead. The payment of these costs, even with interest rates below LIBOR plus 2%, is a permanent net negative for the fund. Since the fund isn't becoming levered, it won't be offset by an increase in dollar profits. Thus, it eats into the fund's dollar lifetime gains as well as its multiple of capital. Some LPs may actually want to have their capital called and earn their preferred return. 
that will jibe with their expectations and preserve the historic hurdle for incentive fees. The preferred return that must be earned before the GP receives incentive fees is calculated based on how much LP capital has been called and for how long it has remained outstanding. Thus, the use of a subscription line in lieu of LP capital shrinks the dollar preferred return hurdle. Lowering the hurdle can increase the GP's probability of collecting incentive fees and cause the payment of incentive fees to the GP to begin sooner, although it will have no effect on the amount of incentive fees ultimately paid by a fund that would easily have cleared the percentage hurdle rate if it hadn't used a line. At the same time, however, the interest and expenses paid on the line will reduce the fund's lifetime net dollar gains, and thus the eventual amount of incentive fees received by the GP. The interaction of these effects can be complex. Less disciplined or less diligent GPs may be induced to lower the standards to which they subject investments because a. their effective cost of capital seems so low, and or b. they perceive an increased likelihood that the reported IRR will exceed the preferred return hurdle and thus a greater potential to earn incentive fees. Some LPs seek to avoid a so-called unrelated business taxable income, UBTI. Without getting into further details, suffice it to say the use of subscription lines increases the risk of UBTI to these LPs. Since each LP's commitment to the fund is an essential part of the bank's collateral, the existence of a line could conceivably complicate the process of selling an LP interest in a secondary transaction, in particular if the would-be buyer is less creditworthy. As the use of subscription lines increases, many banks are requiring greater and more intrusive information on the financial wherewithal of fund LPs to ensure the sufficiency of collateral. Some LPs are now starting to push back on providing this information, while others are expressly demanding to be excluded from borrowings, which can create an awkward dynamic among the LPs and between the LPs and GP. Given the existence of so many pros and cons, what factors have caused the use of subscription lines to become widespread? I believe they're these. For LPs, the desire for high reported IRRs, better cash management, including fewer drawdowns, and the potential to use their capital more efficiently. That is, to use undrawn capital to make investments that may add to overall profits. For GPs, the expectation that higher IRRs will enhance their reputations and enable them to raise more money, the potential to lower the hurdle that must be cleared before incentive fees are received, the ability to enhance reported results in a low-return world or mask otherwise low investment returns and, defensively, a way to be competitive with other GPs who raise IRRs through the use of lines. Impact on Fund Performance Metrics The most important question in assessing fund performance is clear. Did the GP do a good job? It's a simple question, but answering it is anything but. In particular, if a fund that used a subscription line shows a high IRR, 
Does that confirm that the GP did a good job? Since a fund's total dollar profits and multiple of capital aren't improved by the use of a subscription line, the increase in IRR, while pleasant, might be thought of as illusory. Remember, as I wrote in a 2006 memo with the same title, you can't eat IRR. My basic point in that memo was that what really matters is how much money an LP makes as a result of having committed to a fund. It's that simple. But the deeper message was that, while valuable, neither IRR, nor MOCC, nor MOC, nor any other single metric is sufficient to tell us whether the GP did a good job. There are many elements that must be taken into account, and if you hold all the others equal, one metric might be sufficient to answer the question. But the others rarely are equal. For example, a high IRR certainly is desirable, but that's what a fund can show if the GP makes only one investment with a small fraction of the fund's committed capital, and that investment produces a substantial profit. For example, if a $100 million fund invests $1 million in something and sells it a month later for $2 million, that doubling will annualize to an IRR of roughly 400,000%. And if that's the only investment the GP makes, that'll be the fund's IRR, too. But it certainly doesn't mean the GP did a good job. I doubt the LP who committed $10 million to the fund will be happy with $10.1 million back in the end. To understand what an IRR really says about fund performance, you have to know what percentage of the capital was called and how long the GP held onto it. In short, LPs want to see their committed capital become fully invested and remain invested at solid rates of return for a long time. That's the formula for a big gain. A high return earned on a small amount of capital for a brief period doesn't help in that regard. High annualized IRRs on investments of less than a year can be especially misleading. A big multiple of invested capital is good too, but it also may be of limited significance. Let's say the GP of that $100 million fund invests $10 million, keeps it invested for the fund's entire 10-year life, and earns an annual return of 15% on that investment. That will result in proceeds of $40 million, and thus an MOC of 4x. That's great for the LPs, as far as it goes. But if that's the only investment the GP makes, the LPs collectively will earn profits of only $30 million, certainly not what they had in mind when they committed $100 million to the fund. So again, to know if the GP did a good job, you have to know what percentage of the committed capital was invested and how long the investment was outstanding. You have to know what the GP did with the entire commitment, not just the part that was invested. Finally, a big multiple of committed capital sounds almost perfect, but it too isn't sufficient. Let's say all of the fund's $100 million of committed capital is invested and $300 million comes back to LPs for an MOCC of 3x. That's good, isn't it? That depends on how long the GP kept that $100 million. If it took six years to turn $100 million into $300 million, the IRR on the fund is 
But if it took 10 years to generate the same proceeds and MOCC, the IRR is just 11.6%. So it's not enough to know how much capital was invested and how much was returned. We have to know how long the process took. The answer is simple. In order to be able to assess fund performance, we have to know how much capital was committed, how much capital was invested, how long it was kept invested, and how much was returned to LPs. IRR, MOCC, and MOC are all significant indicators, but none of them takes all four of those parameters into consideration. Thus, no single metric is sufficient to tell us how good a job a GP did. We have to consider multiple metrics, and sometimes they will give conflicting answers. Fund A may look better on one of them, and Fund B on another. So this is really just one more way in which investing isn't subject to easy answers. Performance assessment requires consulting a variety of performance metrics, considering other factors as well, some of which are subjective, like how risky the portfolio was, and making judgments regarding the results. One fund with a higher IRR didn't necessarily outperform another. And provocatively, a fund that used a subscription line and came in with a high IRR may not have done as good a job or made its LPs as much money as one that didn't use a line or used a line less extensively and reported a lower IRR. Let's take that to its logical extreme. What if the typical race to the bottom happens at the banks, making financing available on ever easier terms? What if we reach a point where GPs are able to obtain lines equal in size to the vast majority of their LPs' commitments and keep the borrowings outstanding for most of the fund's life? In that case, there will be little need for a GP to draw LP capital, and even low returns on investments could give rise to ultra-high IRRs at the fund level. The bottom line on all this is that the use of subscription lines sheds considerable doubt on the significance of IRR. And when IRR becomes suspect, anyone wanting to evaluate fund results has no choice but to put greater emphasis on the multiple of capital. Bigger Questions All the just-mentioned discussion is essentially mechanical regarding matters of arithmetic. But there are other questions surrounding subscription lines that involve investment risk, and some that have bigger consequences, even potentially systemic. Investments are invariably viewed as safe when it is assumed that the things that should happen will happen. But I always hasten to point out that should isn't the same as will. Let's consider the process that's supposed to apply with subscription line borrowings. The GP organizes a fund and arranges for a subscription line. LPs commit capital. The LPs put in an actual or virtual lockbox the funds they'll need when capital is called. The GP uses borrowings under the subscription line to pay for investments in lieu of calling LP capital. When the subscription line reaches its end, LP capital is called and the line is repaid. That's what's supposed to happen. 
But there are ways in which actual events can deviate from that idealized progression. Most of these would be the result of negative developments in the financial markets or the larger world. Since the use of subscription lines results in there being fewer but larger capital calls, the magnitude of potential defaults by LPs is increased, along with the potential consequences. Suppose the fund makes $5 million of investments against an LP's $10 million commitment, borrowing $5 million on the line, and there's a financial crisis, or the investments simply turn out to be big losers, and those investments decline in value to $2 million. And suppose the line comes due. The fund calls $5 million from the LP with which to repay it, and the LP, perhaps receiving simultaneous capital calls from a number of similarly affected managers, concludes it's in its best interest, or its fiduciary duty, to not put up $5 million to secure investments now worth $2 million. Instead, it defaults on the capital call, depriving the fund of capital, potentially limiting the fund's ability to repay the line and or make further investments, and thereby possibly harming the remaining LPs. Please note, however, that strategic defaults are an extreme hypothetical, since they would expose LPs to penalties, lawsuits, and the forfeiture of their assets in the fund, in addition to the obvious reputational consequences. Some funds, although none of oak trees, rely on subscription lines that are due on demand, rather than at the end of a stated term. What would be the effect if a large number of those lines were pulled simultaneously during a financial crisis? Or what if regulators required banks to call in their lines, even those that aren't callable or whose terms haven't expired? There's no question that the increasing use of subscription lines is altering the pattern of drawdowns and distributions. Going years without seeing much capital called could convince an LP that calls have become less likely. Suppose that in response, rather than set aside capital equal to its commitments, the LP puts it into other investments. Although subscription lines don't result in funds becoming levered, this kind of behavior can result in the LP becoming levered, that is, having total investments plus commitments that exceed its available capital. Now, suppose a financial crisis brings large losses to fund investments in general. If the LP has made excess commitments, it could A, suffer levered losses, and B, be forced to liquidate marketable securities in a crisis to satisfy capital calls in connection with their commitments to closed-end funds taken to a hopefully unrealistic extreme. Could this cause LPs to become insolvent and banks to experience a wave of defaults on these lines? Market meltdowns and financial crises can increase the probability that banks will recall lines and decrease the probability that all LPs will meet the calls. If an LP has taken advantage of subscription line financing to become more than 100% committed, it might be more likely to default on the calls. If a fund has diversified commitment sources and just a couple of LPs default, the fund will probably manage just fine. But suppose many LPs default. 
In that circumstance, it's easy to imagine a fund being forced to sell assets during a market downturn to pay off its line and or lacking the capital it thought it would have with which to take advantage of market opportunities. Both outcomes could be very negative for funds and LPs alike. The obligations of the LPs in a fund with a subscription line are interrelated. For example, one LP's default on its capital commitment requires the other LPs to contribute more, up to the amount of their commitment to repay the subscription line. Could this mean that failures by some LPs would increase the likelihood of failures by others? In the extreme, if defaults on lines are widespread, could lines become a source of significant risk to banks? In order to figure out the full impact of the use of subscription lines, one would have to know what LPs do with the uncalled capital during the period before it's drawn by the funds. It does seem, however, that subscription lines may be adding to risk at a variety of levels. These hypothetical examples imagine financial crises, asset meltdowns, and, in some cases, less-than-conservative behavior on the part of LPs. They're all unlikely. But are they impossible? It's mostly during crises that weaknesses are exposed. Things that are supposed to happen fail to do so, and unanticipated consequences and linkages manifest themselves. As I mentioned at the outset, some oak tree funds have made use of subscription lines in recognition of the advantages described previously. And because many of our LPs, almost all of which are sophisticated institutional investors capable of understanding how lines work and their pros and cons, have indicated that they want us to do so. However, I can report that the concerns discussed previously have caused us to begin an internal process to develop guidelines intended to mitigate the risks of subscription lines while preserving their benefits. The key to financial security, individual or societal, doesn't lie in counting on things to work in good times or on average. Rather, it consists of figuring out what can go wrong in bad times and of only doing things that will prove survivable even if they materialize. Has anyone thought through all the implications of closed-end funds increasing use of subscription lines? Are they all tolerable for the individual parties and for the financial system? I haven't read much on this subject, but we should all be thinking about it. That's the reason I'm writing today. April 18th, 2017. Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated, and such views are subject to change without notice. Oak Tree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oak Tree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is a potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This podcast is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose.
The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performances based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This podcast, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oak Tree. Audiation.